as I'm sure all of us know uh, in this country and many other countries around the world, tomorrow is a special day. It's the Father's Day, as, we, as we, it's called, and it's an, a special time that we are able to honor our fathers and show our appreciation to them for what they've done for us. And I think this is a good holiday that is, once again, a godly thing to show that respect and that appreciation to those who have helped us and raised us. And even as I get older in my life, I still try to show my dad the respect that he deserves. But uh, as I look at Father's Day, um, with my dad, it's a difficult thing because typically you buy your dad a present for Father's Day. But my dad's an old guy. He's going to be 86 years old here in about three days. And he really doesn't need anything. He's had a, a full life. He's done a lot. He's been all over the world, traveled. He's got nice clothes and everything that he needs. So it's always difficult what to get dad on Father's Day. But I realize that there's three things in life that really matter to my dad. The Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and wine. So the Wall Street Journal and Barron's have been paid for for a few months, so I guess, Dad, you're getting some wine tomorrow. I hope you enjoy it. But uh, for me, as a parent whose children have now moved out of the house, we're empty nesters, as they say. Father's Day is a little disappointing because I'm not able to actually be with my children and, and all, but they did graciously send me some presents, so I have a couple of boxes at home that we'll find out what I get tomorrow. But uh, it is a wonderful blessing to have children, of course, and I, I miss them very much, but I realize that they have lives to, to grow up and to go their own direction, and appreciate that they've been able to have some good things. But as I think about presents and what I would like for Father's Day, and what is the most important thing to me that I could receive for my children isn't actually something that I would receive from them as a gift, as it were. As parents, I think those of us who are baptized and true Christians would look at our children and say, the best thing that could possibly happen in my life for them is to be a part of God's family, that they repent, are baptized, receive God's Holy Spirit, and become a part of his family one day. I know that that's What's most important to me, and I'm sure for most all of you out there who have children, you feel exactly the same way. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how tall or short they are. My son is six foot two and my daughter's five foot two. I love them both equally. My, father, my, my daughter says she's fun size, and I agree. She's a lot of fun. But my son, he's a big, tall, strapping young man, and I'm happy that he's got the height that I always wanted to have. I never quite made it to six feet. I always wanted to be six feet, but I'm just a half inch short, never quite made it there. But my son got, it, the, got the height there, so I'm glad for him. But it doesn't matter, like I said, how tall or short or fat or thin or you know, how much money they have or whatever else. Being a part of God's family is what's most important, and that would be the best Father's Day gift ever for me, I know. But when we think about our relationship with our Father in Heaven, and we think about Father's Day, we really, as Christians, should treat every day as Father's Day, because God has given us everything that we have. He's given us life and breath. He's given us the children we have and all of the things in life that we have and are able to do. God is a Father who loves us. And as we think about Father's Day and giving gifts, what is it that we can possibly give our Father in Heaven that He doesn't already have? He has everything. He created everything. Jesus, through Jesus Christ. 
our Savior? What can we give them that they don't have? What it is, is our lives. Our lives. I think we know that. We understand that. At baptism, we committed our lives to God. But it's something that doesn't just happen once at baptism. That commitment and that giving of our lives to God is something that requires us to work on and to do each and every day of our life. The key to this relationship is the same key that's necessary for any kind of relationship that's going to last. To have that type of relationship with God that we give our lives to him, we have to have what? We have to have what he is. We have to have love. The key is love. Do we really love God as we should? Back in the 1970s, the Bee Gees wrote a song, How Deep Is Your Love? And a question we need to ask ourselves, and it's something that maybe we don't really think about as much or as we should, but we should ask ourselves, how deep is my love for my Father in heaven? How much do I really, truly love him? How do you measure that? Mark 12, verse 30 tells us that we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. With every fiber of our being, we are to love God. Do we really do that? How often in life do we get distracted by everything that's going on around us and we end up not, in essence, loving God as we should and showing that love for him? There's many different aspects of love we can talk about. And I could give a whole sermon on it. I'm not going to spend the entire sermon on that because there's some other things that I want to talk about as well. But love is the first and key point that I want to discuss today. And hopefully as we go through this, you can, as you go through and look at your, your lives and examine yourselves as you go back home and as we should be doing on a regular basis, ask yourself those questions and consider what is the depth of your love for your God? Do we love him as we should? There's love for God and there's love for man, but they're really two different things, but yet they're quite the same as well, because you have to have both. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And this really puts in perspective of what our love for God really involves. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? See, God says, you can't love me if you don't love your brother. Do you really love your brother as you should? Is your brother and and his well-being of utmost importance to you? And he goes on to say, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. God says, you cannot love me if you don't truly love your brother. God gave the ten commandments that were based on love. The first four of love toward God and the last six of love toward our fellow man. You can't just keep part of the commandments. God says, if you break even one, you broke them all. How deep is your love for your brother? 
What did Jesus Christ tell us? He says, greater love has no one than this one than to lay down one's life for a friend. Are you willing to lay down your life for anyone in this room? If it was really necessary, would you lay your life down? Would you throw yourself in front of the, of the shooter, so to speak, as the Secret Service is taught, that if somebody's trying to kill the president, they throw their body in front of him to protect him? Would you take a bullet for me? Would you take a bullet for the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you? How much do you really love your brother? Do you have the kind of depth of love for your brothers that you should? Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 22, Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus said we're not even to really be angry at our brother. He goes on to say, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. If you hate your brother enough to call him a fool... To just hate him, that's the same as murder, as Christ pointed out later. Hating another individual to, to the point that you would want them to death is to die is the same thing as if you killed them in your heart. He says, you're in danger of hellfire. You're in danger of not being in God's kingdom and being burned up in that lake of fire and brimstone. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God says, don't give me your gift. I don't want your gift if you haven't gone to your brother and made things right with him. God doesn't want us to show our love for him unless we can love our brother truly. It happens far too often that we have something against someone. I'm quite sure that there's people in this room that have a real problem with other people in this room. And you haven't gone to your brother and you haven't worked that out. That's not pleasing to God. That isn't. We had a sermon on the Feast of Pentecost up in Janesville, Wisconsin, where we were combined with six different congregations and Mr. West gave... Phil West gave one of the sermons, and he made a very good point in talking about this and loving your brother. He said, you know, all too often we see our brothers and sisters and we're watching them. We're intently watching them, and it's almost like we're looking for something we can get on them. And so you see them say or do something, and you're like, aha, I got the aha moment, aha. And you get your paper and you write it down and you're like, ah, I'm going to put that in the file and file it away for later. I'm going to hold that against them. You know what God says for you to do with that file? Burn it. Burn it. Don't hold on to your anger. Don't hold on to your resentment and your bitterness toward others. Because if you want to be in God's family, you're not going to be if you hold on to those things. You've got to get them out. Go to your brother. Talk to him and work it out. Show your brother that you care for him. Forgive him. Even if he hasn't forgiven you. 
Matthew 103. I'm sorry, Psalm 103. There is no Matthew 103 last time I checked. Psalm 103. The only book with 100 chapters in it here. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. God is merciful and gracious toward us. Should we not show that same kind of mercy and graciousness toward our brother to love him? Slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Mercy. We all want God's mercy. We need God's mercy. We don't deserve it. But yet he gives it and shows it to us anyway, doesn't he? Abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us. God doesn't want to be at odds with us. He doesn't want us to be at odds with him either. He wants us to get along. He wants us to love one another. To put aside our differences, so to speak. God puts aside our differences and he goes on to talk about that more. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Thank God for that. That he hasn't given us what we deserve. We all know that we're sinners. We deserve death. We deserve punishment because we constantly are sinning and making mistakes. But God doesn't just sit up there with his file folder and say, Aha! There's another one I got him on. That Jim Meredith's a real bad kid. Boy, is he going to get it. I'm going to get him. God doesn't do that. He doesn't punish us. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. If we fear God, he will show us mercy. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. As far as the east is from the west is infinity there is no as far as because it goes on forever and ever when God forgives our sins he puts them away they're gone it's like on a computer you hit the delete button and you want to delete a file folder and boom it's gone it's deleted but guess what it's still on your computer it's in your recycle bin and you can go back and you can get it aha You can get that file folder if you want to, but that's not the way God does. He hits the empty on the recycle bin, and then it is no more. God forgives our sins. He doesn't hold back against us and say, you know what? When you were 19 years old, you did blah, 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 blah. And I'm remembering it now 35 years later. That's not the way God does things. When he forgives us, It is gone as if it never existed. And that's how God wants us to deal with others. That's the same kind of love and mercy we need to show to our fellow man. And if we do that, what are we doing? We're showing God we love him. Because we love our fellow man. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Yes, God loves us. He pities us, but he wants to forgive us. He wants us to repent, and then he puts it away. But if we want to love him, 
and to truly love our brother, we're going to have to make the effort, the effort to go there, to put the differences aside, to burn that file folder, and to love our brother, to give him a big hug and say, I love you. I care for you. I want you to be in God's family right alongside me and all the others of our Christian brothers and sisters. That's the kind of love God wants us to have. We've got to be willing, as I said, to be willing to lay down our life for our friends. It's not until we have this kind of attitude that we can have the kind of love for God that we should. If we then want to love God, and just for the sake of clarification, when I say God, I'm talking about both God and Jesus Christ, because as we know, God and Christ are one, and I'm not going to throughout the sermon delineate one versus the other, because they are one. If you love one, you love the other, because they are one. But as I said, if we want to love God, then we have to have a close continuous and intimate relationship with them. You don't develop a a deep love for someone that you don't spend a lot of time with, that you don't get to know. When you look at young people who are in love and they're courting and going through a courtship, you see a special kind of love and caring that they have. Once you've been married for a a lot of years, like many of us, it's not quite the same. I watched my daughter go through this about a year and a half ago. She was married just over a year ago now. And she and her fiancé, who they got engaged just before the feast of 2014, they had a love affair going. And they wanted to take time to talk to one another constantly. Even though he was in Cincinnati and she was down here, they still were in constant contact. And I have the proof. I have her cell phone bill. And I read her lengthy cell phone bill. Total minutes of phone calls during the month, 2,500 minutes. Most of them, of course, talking to each other. Then I looked up and said, well, how many times did my daughter call me? Because I know she loves me. And even though she was still living with me, I, I, I'm like, surely she called me. And she did. She called me once that month. (laughs) And apparently we talked all of two minutes. (laughs) How much time do you spend talking to God? How much time? I mean, they averaged about 80 minutes a day. 80. Do you talk to God for 80 minutes a day? Do you have fellowship with him? As I mentioned, God and Christ are one. And in order to have that deep kind of relationship, this is the kind of dedication you have to have to really, truly have a deep relationship with God. Yes, this is not normal. It is for normal for unmarried people that are courting and engaged and that sort of thing. You know. But to talk to our Father in heaven, hopefully we're all doing it every day taking time to spend time talking to him, communing with him. When we do it, it shows we love him. When my children call me and talk to me, I appreciate it greatly, especially now, because they don't live with me anymore. And so when I'm able to talk to them on the phone, I appreciate that. My daughter called me yesterday. Woohoo! It was exciting. 
When she called me for that two minutes in the month of February, I'm guessing it was because she needed more money for the wedding, but I don't know. (laughs) But she called me yesterday just because she wanted to. But I appreciate the time that I'm able to talk to them, and God appreciates the time that we spend talking to him, doesn't he? He wants us to open up to him, to talk to him, to let everything out. That's how we build that deep love for him, through spending time talking and, of course, studying God's word. That is the mind of God. So can you spend 80 minutes a day in prayer and Bible study and meditation? I think we probably can, if you think about it. Make that a goal to say, spend at least 80 minutes a day between those two. Go for 90, go for 100. Some of you who are older and retired, you have lots of time on your hands. You don't have to work. You can spend a whole lot more. But many of us are very busy, and I find myself getting busy and going and going and going, and then suddenly it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't take the time to study my Bible as I should have. I didn't take the time to get to know God and his mind through his word as I should have. This deep relationship that we have to have with one another is, is important, but it's also important that we have that deep relationship with our great God. To be one with God and the Father, we have to have that. In John seventeen twenty one, it says that God and Christ want to be one with us. It's the two of them are now one, but they want to share that oneness with each and every one of us. And just as a husband and wife become one flesh, one day, if we truly love God as we should, we will become one with him as well. This marital relationship is a type of the relationship that we are going to have with God as we spend that time loving him, communing with him, getting to know him. Showing him that we care for him. To be one with Jesus and the Father, we have to have a depth of true love that cannot be surpassed. We must attain that depth of love if we're going to be wed to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He tells us that we're going to be his bride. He wants us to be his bride. And as I talked about my daughter and son-in-law, that they wanted to be wed. They couldn't wait to be wed, but before that, they spent a lot of time talking to one another. Let's turn back to 1 John once again. As we think about how deep is God's love for us? How deep is our love for him? How deep is his love for us? John, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 4. You want to read about love? Read this whole book. I don't have time to go through it all here. I'm going to go through a few verses. But this book is is centered on love and how important love is. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. That's the first command he gives us because he knows if we don't love one another, then the second part of this verse isn't going to happen. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You see, we're going to be born of God if we love. If we love one another, and if we love God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the very essence of God. He is love. 
He doesn't know how to do anything that doesn't revolve around love. God doesn't want to hurt us. He doesn't have any desires in his heart to see anyone suffer. He wants us to love us. He wants to love us. He wants us to love him because he is love. It is the essence of who he is about. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God showed his love for us, his commitment to us by giving his son to be that sacrifice for us. He gave him for us, just as the Son gave himself. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John, once again, reminding us, we've got to love one another. We can't have something against our friends. We can't have our file folder with all of our grievances against our brothers and sisters and hang on to that so that we can use it against them at some point and love God. Burn that folder. Burn all of them. Love God and love your neighbor. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. You see that? If we love one another. If. The biggest two-letter word in the English language. If we love one another. God abides in us. He lives in us. What is that? What does it not say? It says he lives in us if we love our brother which intimates he's not going to live his life in us if we don't love our brother. Jesus Christ will live his life within us if we love our brother. Dropping down to verse 17 then. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because he is so we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Yes, if we have the right kind of love, we don't have to fear because we know that God will be there for us. God cares for us. He wants us to love him. He wants us to have that agape love. That's the Greek word that's used here. Agape. It's a you look it up in the, in the commentary and the uh, dictionary, the Bible dictionaries, and it says that that is like a love feast. A love feast. It's so exciting, the kind of love that God has. It's like a feast. How much do we love going to God's feast and keeping the feast and enjoying that time? That's, God wants us to have that constantly in our life. That excitement, that love, that caring. For one another and for him. God wants us to have the agape love. The depth of his love knows no bounds. Look back here to the previous chapter in chapter 3. Let's read a couple verses here in verse 16. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Once again. Just 
a reiteration of what Jesus Christ said, that no greater love has a man than to lay down his life for a friend. John reminding those that he wrote this letter to, and those of us today, of those words. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Yes, God knows all things. Oh, I I skipped, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 17. Go back to verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does he love, how does the love of God abide in him? If you see a person in need and you don't help them, how is that showing love? We live in a world that is more concerned about itself than anything else. It doesn't want to get involved. It's like, don't get involved. Don't get involved. I heard a story on the news the other day of some poor lady who her husband or boyfriend or whatever lit her on fire. She died. But when they went back and looked at some of the video of the area and what happened, there were two cars that drove by and just kept on driving, never even stopped. And the news reporter said if those people had stopped, they could have probably saved her life. They didn't love their brother. They didn't care for him. They didn't want to go out of their way. They didn't want to get involved. They're like, oh, if I stop, what's going to happen? Maybe, you know, something will happen to me. They're thinking about themselves. Self is not love. Self is about self. Love is about helping and serving and giving to others, doing good to others. We're called to be the bride of Christ. Revelation 19.7 tells us that. And it says that we're being ready. We're being made ready now to be that bride. Love and marriage is all about commitment. It's about commitment. This world doesn't understand or want to hear about commitment, does it? We live in a world that is opposite of that. People don't want to commit themselves to anything. They don't want to make their minds up and say, oh, I'm going to have to do this because I committed to it. And as we look at the marriage statistics in this country and around the world even in many other countries, they're pathetic with over half of the marriages ending up in a divorce. Why? Because they weren't committed to them in the first place. You see, if we're truly children of God and Christians, the commitment that we made when we married our mate is going to carry through. Failure is not an option. That's the way I look at it. In marriages, we're going to have our disagreements and our differences, but failure is not an option. I committed myself to my wife and I committed myself to God at baptism. Have I done perfectly in my commitment? No, I haven't. None of us have. But we continue to try. We continue to work on it. You, re- you watch the television programs on, uh, on, you know, on TV about getting married and the marriage ceremonies. And they typically have, you know, do you take this person to be your lawfully wedded wife in sickness and in, in health, in, in uh what, till death do us part and that sort of thing, for better, for worse. And our marriages physically are going to be tried in those ways, in sickness and in health. They're going to be tried and tested. God is testing us and trying us. 
The key is, is that we don't allow anything to break our love apart. To totally break it apart. We can't let anything come between us and our love for our wives, for our fellow citizens, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we have that idea and that commitment in our mind, then that's going to carry through then to God the Father. And he's going to see that. But there's another aspect of how we should love God that we must not forget. In Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13, Moses here is talking to the Israelites just before they went into the land of Israel, kind of going through a big history of what had happened the previous 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness, going through God's laws, statutes, and many other things. But in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does God require of us? This isn't what he wants. He says, this is what God requires. This is the minimum standard, so to speak. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I commanded you today for your good. This is a mouthful here, but if you think about it, what I just read here is really pretty well sums up the way we should be living our lives, doesn't it? It pretty well sums up what our lives should be about. To fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him. And this is what I'm getting at for the sermon today. I talked about love, but I also want to now talk about fear. And the title of my sermon, for those of you who want a title, is Love, Fear, and Serve God. You see, he says to fear the Lord and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. I'm not going to talk about the commandment keeping. I think we all understand that we can't love God if we don't obey him and keep his commandments. But having the right kind of fear of God is also a very important item that we have to consider. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of knowledge. That's where knowledge begins. You have the proper fear of God, and then true godly knowledge will then come. And then in chapter 9, verse 10 of Proverbs, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have wisdom, to be able to make wise decisions in life, to do what is necessary, you will have the right kind of fear of God. And then Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. To hate evil. To hate this world. To hate Satan and his system. To hate the evil that is promoted by him. To hate sin. And if you hate sin, what are you going to do? You're going to keep God's law, aren't you? Just as we read there in Deuteronomy 10. You're going to keep God's law because you hate evil. Loving God requires that we truly have the right kind of fear of him. 
which requires that we obey and serve him as well. What does it mean to fear God? I think we all have a concept, and this is, a, this is kind of a difficult thing, because there's really two kinds of fear. There's the fear that you're afraid of something. Are you afraid of getting in the water because you don't know what's in there? Is there some alligator, or if you're in the ocean, is there some shark you can't see below the water? People that have phobias of water. Are you afraid of heights? There's all kinds of fears of that kind. But those are physical fears. The fear of God is a different thing. When you look up the scriptures about it, it's it's in Vine's dictionary. It says that this word fear is used of a person in an exalted position. An exalted position. Well, who's in an exalted position? The greatest exalted position of all? Of course, God. Yare, which is the Greek word for it, connotes standing in awe. Stand in awe. We are having this awe of God that, have you ever stood in front of something? Maybe it was a building like the Empire State Building, or if you ever saw the Twin Towers, and you looked and you're just like, wow, that's just awesome. That awe of God, that fear of God, is that exponentially. That's the kind of fear that we have to come It says, this is not simple fear, but reverence, whereby an individual recognizes the power and position of the individual revered and renders him proper respect. Because we fear him, we give him the respect that he deserves. If we have the right kind of fear of God, we're going to respect him as we should. This world doesn't respect God Because it doesn't know God. It doesn't love God. It doesn't want to have, it doesn't want to be told what to do. The world that we live in wants to do its own thing in its own way. Don't tell me what I can or can't do. I'll do whatever I want. That's the carnal mind that's enmity against God. It's against God's way of life. And it's against God from that standpoint. This world doesn't know, know God. They they say many Christians proclaim to be Christians, say they love God. But what did Jesus Christ say? If you love me, keep my commandments. And most of this world doesn't begin to keep the commandments as God gave them. They don't know God. They don't fear God. He goes on to say, in this sense, the word may imply submission to a proper ethical relationship to God. And that's what we're talking about having, the proper ethical relationship with God. If we love God, we will fear God. That's part of loving God. You know, as a a parent, when my children were small, I know that they loved me. They would come when I'd come home from work and they'd come run and jump and give me a hug and everything else. I'd throw them up in the air and catch them. They never doubted that I would catch them. They weren't afraid I wouldn't catch them. I didn't ever suddenly pull my hands back and let them splat on the floor and say, see, you can't trust any people. Never, never trust anyone. And I've heard there have been people who have done such things as that. But my, my kids loved me when, I was, when they were small. I still love me now, but it, I'm thinking in a different way as little children. But they look up to you and they fear you They love you, but they also fear you because they know that 
When they're in trouble, ooh, they fear being in trouble and getting spanked, don't they? And yes, we have to have that kind of fear of God as well because we know that God will punish us if we don't obey him. But we know that God is never going to not love us. He's going to allow trials and tests to come upon us as well. But that's because he loves us. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him and his power, but rather to stand in awe of him and reverence him. In awe. A feeling that comes from the heart. It isn't something that you suddenly come up with. Proper fear of God, as I look at it, is something that is learned. It comes over time as you spend more time coming to know God and his greatness and his power and seeing what he has done in your life and how he has impacted your life and the blessings that he has given you. In Genesis chapter 22, I think we all know the story here where Abraham is told to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to sacrifice him. Genesis chapter 22. And he takes him up onto the mountain and he binds his son Isaac up, which shows his son's respect and love of his father. As his father had told him when he asked him where was the sacrifice, he said, God will provide one. God provided Isaac for him, even though he shouldn't have been able to have a son in his old age and his wife was past menopause. And yet God opened her womb and she had this child. But Abraham knew that he had to obey God. And so in verse 12, as just as he's about to sacrifice his son and kill him, it says he in verse, he says the angel of the Lord in verse 11 called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here am I. Wow. Did he want to hear that voice right then and there? Couldn't have come at a better time. I'm sure his heart was in his throat as he took that knife to slay his son. But when, those vo- when that voice rang out, it was probably the greatest moment of his life. And he says, Do not lay your hand upon the lad, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. God then knew that Abraham had the right kind of fear. The right kind of fear. God told him to sacrifice his son. And he was willing to go forward and do it. And God knew it. And God said, now I know that you fear me. He knew that Abraham feared him and loved him. And as a result of his obedience, he was blessed greatly. And we live today in this nation enjoying the blessings because of Abraham's faithfulness and obedience because he loved God and because he feared God. But Abraham didn't always have this fear. As I said, fear is something that is learned. If you go back in previous chapters and read through what Abraham went through and some of the things that he did, you see that he didn't have the right kind of fear of God. It was something that, like I said, he had to come to learn. On two separate occasions, he went into two separate cities and told the king, that Sarah, his wife, was his sister. 
Why did he do that? Because he feared. He feared man more than he feared God. But God intervened in both situations and in many others as we read the story where he went after Lot and the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and other things. God began to be more real to him. He began to get to know him intimately. He had that love and that loving relationship with him that he needed. And through that relationship, he began to build that greater fear, realizing that he didn't have to fear man. He didn't have to fear anything, that God was in charge of his life. And no matter what happened, he was going to do what God said. And that's the attitude that we have to have. That's the attitude that shows God that we fear him. If we're willing to do whatever he wants of us, we must seek his will. But it, seeking God's will is only as good as seeking God's will unless we actually do it. We have to not only seek his will, but we have to do it. And when we do, we show God that we fear him and that we love him. The disciples were with Christ, saw Christ do many, many miracles, many miracles over and over again. In Matthew chapter eight, I won't turn there because I don't have the time, but goes through all of the different things that Christ did. He was in Capernaum which is on the Sea of Galilee, in Peter's home area. And he healed many different ones that day. It says he healed all those who came to him. And finally, at the end of the day, he was tired, and there were multitudes thronging there, probably bringing more sick to be healed. But Christ was tired. He was still a physical human being, and he was drained both physically and, I'm sure, spiritually. And so he said, let's go out on a boat. That was the only place that he could escape, so to speak, to go out on the Sea of Galilee there and where he could get some rest and some peace and quiet. And so he goes out on the boat, and as we know, he falls asleep down in the lower part of the boat. And the wind whips up on the lake there. The Sea of Galilee is not really a sea as such. It's a, it's a big lake. It's a big lake. I've been there. You can stand on one shore and you can see easily across to the other shore a few miles across. It's, not, it's a big lake, but it's not that big. But yet, I know one time when we were coming down into, into Tiberias after a long day of touring, the winds whipped up. And normally, that sea had been like a sea of glass. But suddenly, these winds kept, came whipping down through that valley that the Sea of Galilee is in. And it whipped those waves up on that lake greatly. Jesus wasn't in some big boat, some big luxury yacht. He was in a little boat. They didn't have great big boats that they used on that sea. There was no reason for them, no need for them. And that sea was being tossed to and fro, and the disciples were afraid they were going to die. And they told Jesus, you know, save us, help us. And in verse 26 of Matthew 8, Jesus, what does he say to them? Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? They were with the Son of Man. They were with Christ, the Creator. And they had seen the miracles that He had provided, but still, they had not developed that level of the fear of God that they should have had. They were fearful of the wind and the waves. Did they really think that God would allow Jesus Christ to drown in the Sea of Galilee after all of the things that had happened? They showed the wrong kind of fear. Later on, a few chapters later, you have the story where Peter walked out on the water 
as he saw Jesus walking on the water. But then what did he do? He looked down, he saw the waves, and he became fearful once again and went down into the water. He still had a lot to learn. These were men who were with Jesus Christ directly. But they still had a lot to learn. But they did. They learned a lot. And after Jesus Christ was crucified, and then after Acts 2 and Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, we see an entirely different group of men who had by that point in time, after spending three and a half years with our Lord and Savior and seeing all that they saw, they had developed the right kind of fear. Turn over to Acts. I don't have time to go through all of the stories here. But in Acts chapters 4, 5, 6, we see a lot of examples. We see a lot of examples of what happened to the disciples there. Here in chapter 4, we have the, this, the situation where it says in verse 3, it says they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day. So they spent the, the night in prison. And so Peter and John here, I believe, um, were thrown in prison. And so the next day they brought them out before the Sanhedrin. And it says that they, in verse 18, says, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So they spent the night in prison. They're like, oh, wow, this was probably the first time they were thrown in prison before. And that would be a little bit scary in and of itself, you would think. But they said, okay, go, but don't preach this man's name anymore. But what do they do? Do they say, okay, sorry, didn't, didn't mean to rock the boat there. You know, didn't, didn't mean to ruffle your feathers. We'll, 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 we'll take it easy. Peter and John answered and say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which have, which we have seen and heard. They said, you're not going to stop us from doing what's right. We're don't, we're not afraid of you. We don't fear you. We fear God, in essence, is what they were saying. We have to do what's right and godly. And we're not going to take orders from you because you don't know what you're talking about. That happened to them a number of times. In chapter 5, they once again were preaching, thrown in jail. And it says here in verse, verse 41, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't quit. They were thrown in jail. They were beaten on that occasion. They suffered for Christ and they were glad for it because they had the right fear of God. That is a fear that they had learned. They had great boldness. I won't take the time to read it, but in, in Acts chapter 7, you have the example of Stephen and what he did in parts of chapter 6 and 7. And how he did the same thing, and he spoke boldly. 
These men weren't afraid to be beaten. They weren't afraid to be thrown in prison. They weren't afraid of anything. And what did they get for their lack of fear? Stephen was stoned. Paul and James, the brother of John, were beheaded. Peter was ultimately crucified. And as the story goes, he was crucified upside down at his own request. Not feeling worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus Christ was. Many others, according to different traditions and stories, went out and were killed here and there in different ways. Some of them perhaps even burned at the stake and that sort of thing. Because they did what? Because they taught the truth. Because they didn't fear man and they did fear God. That is the kind of fear that we have to learn. We've been called... Into, into the church of God at a very special time in history. We know what Matthew 24 says is going to happen. I don't need to turn back there because I'm sure most all of you know very well and have been through it and read it many times. We know that there's going to come a time when this work is going to be stopped. We're going to be beaten. Some of us are going to be thrown in prison. It says some of us will be killed. Because just as the disciples, as I talked about, were, cru were crucified and beheaded for what? For preaching the truth. God has told us to preach the truth. We have been called into this church at this time to preach the truth. That's what this church is about. And each of us has a part in that. As I read early, earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 10, that... That's in verse 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. To serve God. And this is the third element that I want to talk about today that is so very important to show God that we love him. This is the gift of so to speak, that we can give back to him is through our service to him. And it's one that's required of us if we're going to be his sons. Jesus Christ has given us a job to do. We call it the Ezekiel Commission. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, we'll begin in verse 1 here. And again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from the territory and make him their watchman. A watchman. Someone to watch out for danger. That's what a watchman does. He's not out there to watch the weather. He's to watch for danger. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning... If the sword comes and takes him away, the blood shall be on his own head. 
God says, if we don't do this job, if we don't warn this nation and this world of what is to come, their blood is on our head. Their blood is on our head. And then it says, then he goes on to say, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take the warning, if the sword comes upon and takes him, his blood shall be on his own head. So if we do our part, then God says, then it's on them. And that's what we're trying to do in the living church of God, isn't it? Verse 7, so you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. God says, you warn them for me. I'll give you the words to say, but you will warn them for me. We have been given a responsibility that if we do not fulfill has dire consequences. I don't want to be responsible for the death of anyone. And I want to make sure that I do my part. What is each of us and our personal responsibility in doing this work? What is it? About a quarter of the people here today work directly for the church. And that's wonderful. You're having a direct part in that. But for the rest of you here, and for the thousands of the other brethren around the world, what is their part? We're putting a vast amount of money, millions of dollars, into preaching the gospel, into doing this work of the watchmen that God has called us to do. Yes, we should faithfully give tithes and offerings. A full tithe. Generous offerings, being thankful to God for what he has done for us. The fact that we can give back a little bit to him. This shows us we love him. I'm sure this shows him we love him. We should do that. And yes, we should pray. Those are two vital aspects of what our responsibility as Christians are. But it goes beyond that. It isn't just a matter of paying and praying. We're members of the living church of God for a reason. There's many other churches out there. But we are the church that is doing the greatest part of preaching the gospel. It's not if it's convenient or if we can afford it. It's a matter of we can't afford not to do it. We can't afford not to do the work. We are doing the work the best that we can. Putting as much as we can into it. Mark 16, verse 15 says that we are to go into the world and preach the gospel unto every creature into the world. And that's what we are doing. We have television on all around the world. And the Internet, of course, reaches places that we could never possibly reach with the, with the television program. There's thousands of people out there who left the Worldwide Church of God back in the 90s that are just still out there, little independent people, not wanting to be affiliated with anyone, just wanting to do their own thing. They don't think that a work needs to be done. Hopefully you agree that we do need to do a work. We need to do a much greater work. And we should all be praying that God will continue to bless the work greatly to give us much more that we can do with, to open up more doors for us to go through. We know that it's necessary to do the work. My dad gave a sermon a while back that then, that then one of our members made this little poster of with the sevenfold commission 
This is what this church is about. This is our commission. Number one, preach the gospel of the kingdom and the true name of Jesus Christ. And number two, preach the end time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelitish peoples. This is our commission. This is coming from the one who God put in charge of this church saying, these are the important things that we have to do. All seven of these points are important. And we're trying to do that work. The church is going to do as much as it can until God shuts the doors. It can be accomplished in many different ways. As I said, we have the television program, but the television program can only reach a certain amount of people, and it's expensive, and we're putting millions of dollars into it, but we can't begin to reach the whole world. And so as, as we've had meetings with my father over the last few years, he has become more and more feeling of the importance that we need to put a lot more into the Internet because that is a method by which we can reach the whole world in a way that we can never do unless we somehow had billions of dollars to spend with the television program. And it isn't a matter of getting rid of the television program because what does the Internet do? It plays the television program. It's just in a, on a different format, whether through YouTube or they go onto our church website or whatever. We need to do a greater work. We need to look for new ways constantly to, as the expression of, of fishing in a different pond. We've been fishing in a pond with the Tomorrow's World telecast for many decades now, going back to Worldwide Church of God and now in the Living Church of God. But now we've got to find other ways to reach other people because the television can only do so much. And so we've got to find new ways to use the Internet. And that's where members come in because we look to you as our eyes and ears to say, hey, have you got an idea of how we can do something better? We had seminars at the Charlotte Family Weekend with singles and teens asking them, how do we reach your generation of people? Because the Tomorrow's World television program, quite honestly, isn't reaching very many young people at all. How many of you young people are up at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning watching the telecast? How many of you are even awake at 6 a.m.? Probably not too many. We see that we're reaching an older audience, and that's important too. We don't want to abandon that, but we want to do a lot more through the Internet to reach a different generation of people, try to reach some of these younger people. And as I said, when ideas come in from people in the church, We'd look at those. We think about those. About a year and a half ago, one of our members came to me with an idea for a website. And he said, hey, I've got this idea. I was actually staying at his house out in California for a few days. And we discussed it over a couple of day period. And I said, you know what? I think that's a great idea. I want to I propose that to my dad and others at headquarters. And now, a year and a half later, it's come to fruition a lot of you are familiar with it because some of you have been involved at the office. But the Bible says that, .com and .org, either one, it doesn't matter, is our new website. It's very different, but it's eye-catching and it's in a different way. We still have our Tomorrow's World website and we always will. But this is a little different way. This is something that the young people, when they saw it, were like, yes, this is great. This is something that 
if they try to tell their friends, yeah, go to tomorrowsworld.org, they're going to go there and look at it and say, what's all this about? But this is a, a fresh way of preaching the gospel and reaching a younger generation to where our young people can take that and say, hey, you know what? I found this great website that I think is really interesting that you might like. And we've tried to make it eye-catching and a lot of eye candy, as it were, to get their attention to say, hey, do you know what the Bible actually says? Because most of this world doesn't. I was just up in Michigan, or Wisconsin, I mean, and we were talking to one of the sales agents, and she's a Catholic. And she said, I honestly don't know why I believe what I believe. We go to Catholic church, we go through all the rigmarole and the pomp and circumstance and this and that and the other thing, but they never have us open a Bible at all. The minister gets up there and gives some talk. Usually, she said, it's not even that interesting. But she was wondering, what about, what's this and what's that? She was starting to think about, why, do I, why am I a Catholic? What do I believe? I don't even really know what I believe. And when you start talking to some people that are out there, they don't know why they believe what they believe. We want them to be able to understand what God's word says. And that's why we build these things and we do these things. But this idea came from a lay member not from someone on the internet team. We've got a great internet team, but this idea came from outside. Someone who had an idea. This is the way that each of us can help, in essence, be a part of preaching this gospel. We can each do our part to make sure that we are putting our, our all into it, so to speak. We need to try something new. You know, Jesus was out there after he had been crucified and he came back and the disciples were out there on the boat. Remember, they were fishing and they weren't catching anything all night long. And he comes out the next morning and he says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And they did. And when they did, of course, they brought in so many fish, they couldn't even pull the nets in. We've got to cast our nets wide in er different areas. And if any of you have ideas of ways to reach your generation, whether you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, or your 80s, if you've got an idea, let us know. We want to be able to reach the whole world. We want to get their attention. We want them to know that we're here. How can you help preach the gospel? A lot of you in this room, probably most of you in this room, have a Facebook account. How often do you go on Facebook and like or share something on the Tomorrow's World or on Living Church of God. That makes a difference. That makes a difference. I've asked people as I've traveled around to different church areas, just go on the, on the Facebook page and like something once or twice a week. Share something once or twice a week. Don't go on there and like and share every single thing that we post or your friends will all think you're crazy. Pick out something that you think that your friends and people your age would find interesting. Because if people see you, there are certain people that I see that just constantly post, 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 post. And it's like, i got to unlike this person because they just post too much. Do it within reason. But this is something that you can do that can help preach the gospel. You know, get on the Twitter account and follow us on Twitter. YouTube, go to the YouTube page. Like a sermon, like a webcast, or something like that. This is something that doesn't take you very much time or very much effort, 
but it's something that can help do the work. We all can and must get involved in helping to preach the gospel. The commission was given to the church and to each and every one of us as members. We're a part of this. But it isn't just a matter of you put your tithe money in and you're done. That's all you have to do. God says no. He says that each of us is supposed to be lights in a world, aren't we? Matthew 5. He says we're to be the salt of the earth. To have flavor so that people will like us. They think we're good people. But then he says that we're to let our light shine. Not hide it under a bushel. But to let our light shine. Don't be embarrassed about your beliefs. When you go to work or school and you have to come to church because of a holy day or you can't do something because it's on Friday night and and because of the Sabbath, what do you do? Do you make excuses and say, well, I've got other things already planned? I've, I've run across people before who will do everything but say, well, I'm sorry, I can't do this because it's on the Sabbath day and I keep the biblical Sabbath day. It's very simple. I have to work with people outside in my job all the time as I go to dozens of hotels a year talking to salespeople. Why do you do this? What's this Feast of Tabernacles all about? Oh, it's just a kind of a festival thing. It's a festive time. No. I tell them why we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, what it's about, what it pictures. It's picturing the coming millennium, which is why I'm looking for a venue with a millennial setting. I don't want a venue in downtown New York City or downtown Chicago. We want to get a millennial setting for God's people to come and be able to enjoy this. It's a special time of year for our people. Don't be embarrassed about your beliefs. Don't allow others to get to you because they start making fun of you. Oh, that stupid, crazy thing. You don't have to do that. Stand up. Be a light. Let your light shine. Be a part of serving God through being a part of this work. You know, there are thousands of people who have been called into the church of God over the decades, not because of a magazine, not because of a television program or a radio program or a booklet or the Internet, but because of a person. They got to know a member of God's church. And it had an impact on their life. I'm sure there's a number of people in this room today who fall into that category. Someone in God's church made an impact on their life. And they're here today. That's your part in being a part of doing the work and serving God. If you do that, God will bless you. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Some of Paul's final words as he wrote to Timothy here shortly before he died. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. He's talking to Timothy, who was a minister here. And you might say, well, I'm not a minister. But yet, what does the word minister mean? 
We're servants. We're all servants of God. We're here to serve God. We're here to serve mankind. And we're to have this attitude and this willingness to get out there and preach the word. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And we've seen that happen. Those within the church who have gone away. They've been dragged out of God's church because they had itching ears. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But if you're a strong friend in God's church, what are you going to do? You're going to help that person. You're going to help them hopefully see that they're going in the wrong direction. As you see that they have wrong attitudes and wrong ways of talking about things, hopefully a light bulb will go off in your head so that you can help them. You can serve them. And through serving them, you serve God. God wants us all to be watchful. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Fulfill. Fill it to the full. Make sure you do the work of God that He has given you to do. And that's what I encourage you to do today. Do the work that God has given you. Don't allow yourselves to be dragged down by others. Don't allow yourself to be turned aside to fables and have itching ears. Be a worker. Be a worker bee in the, in the church of God. Be an active part. Don't just be inactive sitting on the sidelines. You show up to church on the Sabbath. You put on your Sabbath suit and your Sabbath smile. And then you go back to your life. You mail your tithe check in. But that's it. Serving God is a full-time job. Just as loving God is a full-time job. All of us including you younger people, have an opportunity to do something really special with your lives by getting involved in preaching the gospel and being a help in feeding the lambs and the sheep. Jesus said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That's what he told his disciples, to feed them, to help them, to nurture them, to protect them, to love them. That's for us. That's for all of us. That isn't just for the ministry. We all have to help one another, try to serve one another, love one another, encourage one another. Let your light shine brightly as you help do the work of God. This is how we serve our Father in heaven. This is the gift that we can give Him today, tomorrow, and the next day. Father's Day comes every day when it comes to our Father in heaven. Make sure that you love God. Make sure that you obey Him. Make sure that you serve God. And make sure that you give your life to God and fear Him. Because if you do, you will one day be His born son in His family.